0: Revelation 22, 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, bright as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of her street. And on either side of the street was a tree of life producing 12 fruits, yielding each month's fruit monthly. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There will be no accursed thing there, but the throne of God and of the Lamb are in her, And his slaves will minister to him. They will see his face, and his name is on their foreheads. Night will not exist there, and they will need neither lamp nor sunlight, because the Lord God illuminates them, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we dig into it, that our hearts might be touched with your generosity. Uh, You are such an awesome God. We love you and we're so grateful to you for uh, providing heaven on behalf of your people, but also for ministering daily in our lives, all the fruit of your spirit. Uh, We pray that you would anoint me as I preach your word, that I might bring it faithfully and that each one of us might receive it faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, this is the third snapshot of the New Jerusalem. And this one shows us the main city square. Now, the picture in your outlines does not do it justice. It's just one artist's rendition of what it might look like peeking through uh, one of those round doorways, you know, that they're, it's a pearl, right? Pearls are round, so he's pictured it as a round doorway, and the door is always open, so he's looking into the city. But you can sort of think of this as downtown New Jerusalem, Now, a lot of people don't like downtowns. Some downtowns are fantastic, full of life, and other downtowns kind of run down. Um, I had one time where I was uh, driving through a city. I was not intending to stop there at all and uh, got off on the wrong uh, uh, exit and ended up getting lost in in a gang-infested area. And there was a group of youths that was on the road, there was not enough room for me to turn around. They had One of them had a baseball bat, and they looked like they were fit there to stop any cars from coming through. So I didn't know what to do. I, I gunned it, put my head down, and drove right through them. Uh, didn't hit anybody. They jumped out of the way in time, got a couple of dents on the car as a result. But there was no way I was going to stop. And ever since then, I thought, man, downtowns. Unless I really know, it's been um a you know a a good a good downtown i've kind of avoided them so the word downtown is not super meaningful to me <laughs> even if it's a great downtown i tend to avoid them because of all of the congestion and traffic but i don't think you're going to want to miss or avoid this downtown that is being described here because this is where god's throne is the person that you love you're going to be drawn to this area over and over again to worship in To adore him. This is going to be a lovely place to visit. Down the middle of the massive street is a massive river of life, with a beautiful boulevard of trees on either side. It's a garden city, and really, when you start studying what the old and New Testament says about this new Jerusalem, there is no earthly city, no matter how dazzling, that can even remotely compare to the lights and the sights of this amazing city, and. This is the third of our tour through the glories, and previously we primarily looked at the outside of the city. We did examine how many people could be in it. But uh, this is the heart, the heart of the city, God's throne room, and what's surprising about this downtown area is that it is a garden. Uh, The painting I've included doesn't really show it that much, but most commentators say that this is a lush, over, you know, just a a reaching out kind of a garden all throughout the city. Uh, Least parts of the city have to represent a Garden of Eden. Verse 1 says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life. Almost everybody says that the images that we have in the Old Testament on earth are only faint reflections of what we see in heaven. That's true right from the Garden of Eden. It was portraying what was to come. Um, if you read Ezekiel and all the different passages that describe the uh, Garden of Eden, uh, everybody says it was on top of this mountain that was a plateau. Okay, So the gardens on top of the plateau. There is a river that waters that garden and it overflows down the sides of the mountains, four different directions, watering the whole earth. That's the picture that uh, commentators say. Uh, 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 All of the different verses show of the the Garden of Eden. And uh, we aren't told what this heavenly water is for. Uh, I assume that there is some parallel to what we use water for on earth. Uh, But certainly, whatever the literal water is for, it symbolizes the same thing that water symbolizes throughout the Old and the New Testament. It symbolizes the Holy Spirit bringing life and refreshment. Now, keep in mind, we've been saying that this new Jerusalem was being built in the first century. And so this river, I think it's a literal river, was already present within that uh, new Jerusalem. And if it symbolizes the Holy Spirit flowing from God's throne through the Garden City and out into the world, just like the Garden of Eden did, then there is a gradual transformation of the planet spiritually that is happening in history. So the point of the picture is, apart from the Holy Spirit, uh, there can be no life. And apart from the Holy Spirit, even if we already have life, there can't be any ongoing transformation. We constantly need the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives. And here's how Christ worded it in John 7. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So if each individual in the new covenant has the potential of having rivers of living water flowing out of him, can you imagine what a community of faith can have? Uh, Faith receives this water from God, it again disperses that water to others. And that's exactly what verse 17 says of our chapter. It's uh, the bride and the spirit saying, come, come, drink of the waters. It's an invitational thing throughout history for people to partake of it. And so you have these figures of water symbolizing the spirit throughout the Old and the New Testaments in John chapter 4. Jesus told a Samaritan woman who had been drawing water out of the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And so it's, it's beautiful imagery of the life and refreshment and the garden-producing transformation that the Holy Spirit gives to us, I'm going to give you one more background passage. There are others, but these are the main ones. Ezekiel 47 uh, is a passage that talks about the uh, the literal temple that was uh, being built was to be built and in, in the future to Ezekiel by Ezra and uh, Nehemiah. And the water that flows out of that temple is based on the fact that very literally there was an artesian well under the temple uh, that uh, provided water for the temple and for the city as it flowed eastward. Psalm 46.5 speaks of, of a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. So in terms of symbology, that's the Old Testament background. So here's the question. and and there's debate when you read the, the commentaries, which is being described here? Is it describing the water, literal water, or is it describing the spirit? Well, in one sense, it really doesn't matter at all which one is being described because either way, whether it's the symbol or the thing symbolized, it's pointing to the Holy Spirit uh, that is poured out into our lives, and so I think really, in terms of the book of revelation, almost always it 's both the literal and this and what is symbolized by that that literal symbol that 's uh, going on and the water somehow in this city keeps getting recycled, just like water gets renewed in our system, hydrological system on earth, uh, somehow it gets. Uh, recycled in that system. And I don't see why it cannot be literal. Uh, All of the other times were literal. Jesus was pointing to the priests having just poured out water in John chapter 7 when he pointed to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The woman was just drawing water from the well when he points to the Holy Spirit. And uh, certainly in the Garden of Eden, it was a literal river that came out of that garden that symbolized the fact that Adam and Eve, even pre-fall, would not be able to take their dominion apart from the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in their lives. But Ezekiel 47, I think, is particularly strong in its background. I want you to turn there with me because Ezekiel 47 gives, uh, I think, a marvelous picture of what is happening in our chapter, Revelation 22. I'll just remind you that in my Esther series, I showed that the temple of Ezekiel 40 through 47 was a literal temple. It was going to be built by Ezra and Nehemiah, get added to by Herod. And uh, in my Acts series, I showed that Pentecost was poured out in that literal temple so that when people left that temple filled with the Holy Spirit, they took the spirit of Pentecost out into the world just like literal water was flowing out of that temple. So let's start reading at verse 1. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. Now, was this part of Ezekiel 47 literal? I tend to think so, but even if not, even if you're talking about the spirit here, it was at least symbolized by literal water that flowed out of the temple in the first century. The Gihon uh, spring was a siphon spring that had sufficient force to push water all the way up Warren's shaft. I don't know if you've read any archaeology books, but there's this deep shaft right there pushed it all the way up and into the temple. Now that's assuming, of course, that uh, you hold to the theory held to by um, uh, George Wesley Buchanan, Ernest Martin, and many others. This was the original old theory of where the temple was located. There's a lot of debate on this. Uh, In a previous sermon, I showed that there was four different views of where the temple was located. And uh, we believe that it was located uh, just to the uh, southeast of um, the, the the flat rock that people call um, Haram al Sharif, where the rock of the dome, uh, dome of the rock, yeah, rock of the dome, <laughs> uh, where the dome of the rock was uh, located. Now, obviously, a lot of debate on that, but I believe that all of the biblical and the historical evidence points in that direction. And let me just give you a brief rabbit trail here and tell you why I believe this, because once you understand how the temple was structured and where this stream was, all of a sudden so many passages in the Old and the New Testaments come to life. There are crystal clear historical sources proving that the Gihon Spring was under the temple. Aristeus is the first one. He reported in a long letter to King Ptolemy, this is in the 2nd second, second to 3rd century B.C., his eyewitness account of the glories of the temple. In one place in that letter he said, and there is an inexhaustible supply of water because an abundant natural spring gushes up from within the temple area, from within the temple area. You do not have any spring over the area where the Dome of the Rock is. In fact, they're totally dependent on rainwater and water being brought by hand. Uh, for that location. Anyway, Aristea says that this vast supply of water was carried under the temple through an intricate system of pipes uh, where it went into cisterns and it fed different areas with faucets and things like that and then eventually went off into the city and completely supplied all of the city's water supply. So it's an incredibly wonderful image of water coming from God's temple and supplying all of the citizens of Jerusalem. So, you know, this is patterned. The earthly temple is patterned after the heavenly one. And uh, there's marvelous symbolism going on. But Aristeas' description absolutely does not fit the places of the Dome of the Rock. Uh, Aristeas pointed out that, uh, you know, some of the water flowed to the area where the sacrifices uh, were. And uh, through some kind of flushing mechanism, it made all of the Uh, Blood disappear, he said, in the twinkling of an eye and go down into a separate sewer system. I always wondered, what did they do with the massive amounts of blood uh, that were spilt in the temple? Well, that temple was always pristinely clean, according to Aristeas. The water just completely uh, got rid of it. And he said that the water stream that was going under every portion of that temple was so loud, it didn't matter where you're walking in the temple, you heard rushing water underneath you. And there are scriptures that speak of the noise of many waters under God's throne. Psalm 29.3, Psalm 93.4, there's many scriptures that talk about that. Well, er- Aristeas describes the sound of many waters under the temple. A second book, that was written in the second century B.C., was the Book of Enoch, written around the same time. And it also mentions a stream flowing under the temple. Again, that does not fit the Dome of the Rock. Uh, Third, the Roman historian, Tacitus, said that the temple, quote, contained an inexhaustible spring. And he goes on to describe that spring, but that's the key phrase. The temple itself contained an inexhaustible spring. These are all eyewitness accounts that many modern establishment, there's still modern theories that say, yeah, they agree with me, but the establishment view has to ignore those historical references uh, because uh, it simply does not fit the Dome of the Rock being the place of the temple. And the place of the temple is absolutely impossible for many, many other reasons. For example, I've got a whole bunch of Jewish uh, sources that say that for the temple ceremonial cleansings, it had to be running water. It could not be a cistern. Had to be running water, what they called living water, and Leviticus itself speaks about that. Uh, Leviticus 14, Leviticus 15, other passages. Now, what the inspired Scripture itself says about the spring of water under the temple, I think is most noteworthy. And I think these passages make absolutely no sense if the temple was over. Uh, the place where the uh, Dome of the Rock is. Uh, Psalm 87 verse seven speaks of springs of water being in Zion. Psalm twenty-nine, ten, says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. So that would imply that the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies was over a flood of waters. Verse three says waters plural, uh, Joel 3.18, a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord. Psalm 46, 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. So there, there the point is there was a literal river that came out of the literal Old Testament temple, and it symbolized the spirit that would flow from the temple at Pentecost. If you want some other proofs, so I'll just give you one more scripture. Psalm 48, 1 through 3 says the temple was on the north side of the old city of David. Now, we know exactly where the old city of David is. If it's just on the north side of that city, then it would be right over this Gihon uh, Spring. And so that makes sense of uh, David putting the tent for God's meeting place where the Ark of the Covenant was right next to the Gihon Spring. And then 1 Kings uh, 1, 38 to 39 mentions that Solomon got coronated right next to that tent, right next to the Gion Spring. And there's other evidences that Solomon himself built it right there. Well, back to Ezekiel 47. The literal flow of water out of one of the gates, out of the east gate, symbolizes Pentecost falling on the disciples, gathered in the upper room of the temple premises. In Acts, I demonstrated it was one of those meeting places you could rent out in the temple. And as they themselves left the east gate, they took the Spirit with them, since they are filled with the Spirit. And over time, there's more and more Spirit filled Christians who eventually fill the entire world. That's the imagery. So, Ezekiel 47, beginning to read it, or continuing to read it, verse 3. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000, brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. And he measured 1,000, brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. So obviously he is describing a miraculous river here. He has smoothly transitioned from the literal uh, the, the symbol of the thing symbolized the healing influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, he continues to describe this healing using symbolic language from the Old Testament. Uh, verse 6, he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. Take note of that phrase. That's going to come up in Revelation 22. And he said to me, "This water flows toward the eastern region, Eastern region was the desert. that was representative of paganism. Uh, no life there. That's where it's flowing. It goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed and it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river go, rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Eglaim. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. So you can see the symbolism of the trees of life, the water of life, even the healing properties of the leaves that are there. How much of this is literal, how much of it is symbolic is sometimes hard to make out because all through the Old and New Testaments, you find God switching. He goes fluidly from the symbol to the thing symbolized and back to the symbol. He goes from the sign to the thing signified. And if the river symbolized Pentecost, then the river of life brought life in history. That's one of the key points I'm wanting to make as the Spirit transforms the planet. Uh, Remember that the new Jerusalem was created in the first century. So it's bringing life in history. Now, in Revelation 22, he is saying that the same river of life is needed for all of eternity. For all of eternity, we're going to need the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. Always a need for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, well, that is a background. Uh, Go back to Revelation 22. This says that the water of life was bright as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of her street. Bright as crystal indicates that this is not stagnant water. This is pure, sparkling spring water, and it symbolizes the purity of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit himself brings refreshment. He brings life, brings joy. And it proceeds from the throne of God, it says, and of the Lamb, so the Spirit only works out what the Father has decreed and what the Lamb has per- per- purchased. There is no division, no tension, no contradiction between the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you want to go down a rabbit trail on your own, there, would, there is an absolute contradiction if you hold a four-point Calvinism. Logically, there is a, a contradiction between God's decree and between the work of the Spirit and the work uh, of the Son, But in this place here, what is the Spirit doing? He is carrying out the will, because he's flowing, right, as water, he's carrying out the will of the throne, of the Father, and of the Son. And so there is a a perfect um, uh, unity in their work, and he's specifically calling the Son the Lamb, so he's highlighting the fact, this is the redemptive work. Perfect consistency and redemption with the Father's eternal plan. Whereas in four-point Calvinism, there's one person who really wants to save the whole world, and there's another person who wants to save the elect. There's a contradiction in the way in which they uh, purpose. Now, the last phrase of the sentence, which is a little awkward because it's the first little bit, tiny bit of verse 2, is in the middle of her streak. Now, some versions have put that in the middle of the street, and they connected it with the sentence in verse 2, but it really belongs with the previous one, and I think Pickering's translation draws that out very, very well. Now, this means that the river is flowing right down the middle of this golden street with street and trees on both sides of that river. Now, this may indicate our very walk must be characterized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, certainly, the Holy Spirit characterized everything that's done in heaven, but he should be empowering all that we do in our daily walk below. But it appears that the water flows down the street and then is diverted into various parts of the city. Now, some people imagine that this is just like in the Garden of Eden, that this throne room is right up on the top, and then the water circulates somehow uh, again, I, I would emphasize the fact this can be literal. There is some kind of a recycling process of the water, a hydrological cycle, so to speak, there, just like we have in our own. Now, it may be different, but there is a recycling of the water. It keeps flowing and flowing forever. Now, the next phrase in verse 2 moves on to describe another aspect of this garden city, and that is the trees. And on either side of the river was a tree of life producing 12 fruits, yielding each month's fruit monthly, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now there are three things that have puzzled people, and the first is, how can there be a tree singular of life, and that tree of life be on both sides of the river? And the most satisfactory answer, I think, is given by Beale, Thomas, On, Lenski, many, many others, and they say it's a collective tree. In other words, they say it's an orchard or it's a forest that is derived from one tree. Okay, so that's a concept that uh, it, it, uh, it, I think is uh, very meaningful. And then this completely links it with Ezekiel 47, which says that there were multitudes of trees on both sides of the river. It uh, makes sense then of the lack of an article before the word in the Greek and the literal rendering of on either side of the river as from here and from there. In other words, the tree is here and it's there and it's everywhere all along the river. It's lined up and down that river. And your picture shows just a measly row of trees. But in my mind's eye, commentators speak of this as being like a forest that branches out from either side of this river. There's a lot of trees there. Now, if this interpretation is correct, and I've been convinced by these commentators that it is, then Beale says that this makes the eternal paradise far more than paradise restored. It is paradise exponentially increased and improved upon because of God's grace. You're moving from one tree in the original Garden of Eden to a tree that is spread absolutely everywhere. The tree of life symbolizes the cross of Christ from which life flows, and so the literal tree and the fruit acts as a beautiful symbol of the spiritual realities that flow from redemption. Um, I really love these, these snapshots. I think there are beautiful glimpses into the, the glories that await us. Now, there are differing views on whether the monthly fruit is 12 crops of the same fruit or whether there are 12 different fruits that are produced every month. On Sweet Lad and others say that it's 12 different kinds of fruit, whereas Beckwith, Cared, Mounts and others say that it bears 12 crops the same fruit on a monthly basis i tend to lean in that that second direction because um it's just like there is there's many manifestations of the tree of life there's 12 manifestations of the one uh kind of fruit but i'm not dogmatic on that whatever the literal fruit might be commentators are generally agreed it symbolizes the constancy of god's provision that never fails us there is always more generous provision for the saints. Now there's one more issue of debate, and that is the fact that there are months may be another indication that there actually may be a moon. Many commentators that deny that there is a moon, and and previously I had mentioned that I had leaned in that direction for, uh, for a while, the commentators who insist there is no moon say that John is here using earthly language to describe something that does not exist. And to me, that does not make sense. The language clearly indicates that there are months and that there is progression of time which directly contradicts the theory that some people have held to that when we get to heaven, uh, at least after the second coming, time will be abolished. We won't be subject to time anymore. Now, that's actually a heresy. Uh, believe it or not, it is a heresy. Many evangelicals hold to it. But to say that time no longer exists divinizes us in some sense. We do not and never will experience yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the past, present, and the future all at the same time, nor are we above time or not subject to time. Because we are creatures, all of creation is subject to time and space limitations. God is not limited. He's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at the same time. We can't. We have to travel. So it is really an important uh, concept to get right. Well, people object, doesn't Revelation 10 verse 6 say that time will be no more? No, it does not. Even in the King James that people get that from, it's worded differently than people like to quote it. The King James says there should be time no longer, and it does not mean in the English and they tell you what it means in their commentaries. It does not mean in the English, Elizabeth, Elizabethan English of that time, that time ceases to exist. It means time is run out before judgment will fall. So, virtually all of the translations out there either translate it as there's no more delay of judgment or time is run out for judgment. And the point is that. Only God is not subject to succession of moments. We will experience months, however those are ticked off, and some kind of sequence of time. It's a part of creaturehood. Finally, it mentions that the leaves of the tree were intended for the healing of the nations, and people try to use this to prove that we're not talking about eternity, we're talking about history, right? Because you don't need healing in eternity. Everybody's going to be completely healed. Well, we've pointed out each of these snapshots is standing from the perspective of the first day of eternity and looking back at what all of this temple has accomplished, what it was for in the previous years. There's no verb here, so there's no way that you can have time sequence uh, that is uh, being mentioned. But um, uh, it's giving the purpose for the leaves. Beale words it this way just as the tears that God will wipe away refer not to pains being endured throughout eternity, but to a once-for-all relief from such pains, so it is likewise here. So all through history, God's grace was bringing healing, but as eternity begins, there's a final healing, even of memories, okay? Tears are wiped away, diseases is wiped away, emotional pain is wiped away, there's a final healing healing that culminates thousands of years of healing. But after that day, there will be no more disease. There will be no more pain or bad memories. And so there will be no more need for healing. So if the literal leaves are symbols of spiritual healing, it implies that there are healing properties in at least some literal leaves. And I'm talking about healing in the physical realm, medicine. Uh, certainly the tree of life seemed to have some kind of literal healing properties in it that would enable Adam and Eve to live forever. And God says, lest they live forever. I mean, who wants to live forever in a a state of sin and misery? I, I wouldn't have wanted that. So it's actually a blessing that they were excluded from that garden by the angel. And some commentators believe it may even be the same angel that's now welcoming them to the new garden with the the tree of life, but we're not told. But some people speculate that the use of this metaphor implies that even in history, there are some literal trees that bring literal healing and that serve as medicine. And I believe that that is possible. I think it's confirmed by Ezekiel 47, which deals with history. And it speaks of the leaves of those trees, which were symbols of spiritual healing, being medicinal, medicinal uh, leaves. So it makes sense that the literal is going to bring healing if it's symbolizing the cross being, bringing healing. I mean, think of it this way. If there's never been any leaves or plants in all of human history that are medicine, that bring healing, they are a lousy, lousy, lousy symbol of God's healing of his grace, right? So this is an area of dominion that I think Uh, People need to be investigating more. Actually, pharmaceuticals have gotten a number of their ideas from uh, leaves and plants, and they're still searching for some of those. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, when they take it in isolation from the whole plant, it may change how the plant works in your body. But I think a great deal more work needs to be done in this area. But unfortunately, well, let me skip the unfortunate. Uh, Let's just say, ultimately, the focus of this passage is not on physical medicine. That's simply a symbol of something far more important. The focus is on Jesus. He's the focus. The cross of Christ gave healing and life in history and will be the basis for life throughout eternity. Outside of Christ, we have nothing, but inside of Christ, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. So in history, the saints are a people in process of healing in eternity. They will give thanks for the cross for having healed them forever. And so the bottom line is that these two verses pick up the themes of paradise and they show even though paradise was lost in in, in Adam in Genesis, it will be regained and surpassed in history. By the way, if you want to dig into this more, uh, you know, the... Um, the temple of the Old Testament, was a kind of the Garden of Eden as well. It's filled with garden imagery uh, throughout the temple, but even that is nothing compared to the Garden of City that God has for us. Now, the next point is that this is a cosmopolitan city. Verse two ends with the word nations. Even in eternity, there will be nations. Believe it or not, There's a lot of people that deny that. It goes completely contrary to their philosophy, but this, there will be nations in eternity. Chapter 21 says that nations will be serving Christ for all of eternity, and they will have kings over them for all of eternity. So what makes the difference between nations? It appears that some of what differentiates nations on earth will continue to differentiate nations in eternity in heaven. How? I don't know. I can only make guesses. Will they retain some of their skin colors? It wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. Will they retain their languages? I demonstrated last week. No, that is probably not the case. I gave a reference from Zephaniah that God is going to give everyone a purified language. So people's plural will be given a singular purified language And so I don't think uh, there will be multiple languages. Will there be different cultural traditions? Possibly, I tend to think so. But however you analyze the concept of nations, in some way, national identity will seem to continue into eternity. Uh, To me, that seems pretty clear. And if it continues into eternity, we should not object to it continuing in time. And I think this speaks to both extremes that have been presented recently on Facebook on the issue of kinism versus the obliteration of nations. okay. In some people's overreaction to extreme kinism, that says, hey, there should not be different nations in a congregation, for sure, uh, two different national peoples should not intermarry. Some have overreacted and they actually are wanting to obliterate all national differences. They want such genetic amalgamation that there won't be any distinctions out there, even cultural artifacts broken down. It's kind of a weird, uh, a weird concept, but uh, this one talks about the preservation of nations and the fellowship of nations, thus avoiding both extremes. To be cosmopolitan means to be at ease, to be totally at home all over the world in every culture, without. Uh, having any kind of a prejudice against national or cultural ideals. This eternal ideal of a cosmopolitan city should have a cultural pull upon our lives where we both value cultures as well as integrate cultures into one church. Now, of course, there won't be any flag-waving, a sense of superiority of one nation over another. Their focus is going to be God-centered and grace-driven, All the tensions that tend to divide cultures and nations today will dissolve in unity in heaven. Unity in diversity. And we should model this unity in diversity on earth. National walls, enmity, pride, hostility will be healed. Only that which has made it through God's judgment fires and has been cleansed by Christ's redemption will make it into heaven, But whatever is purified, enhanced, and glorified from various cultures will be eternally appreciated by all. And the take home I have from this, and here I'm getting really controversial, the take home I have from this is that we as a church should reflect a multicultural perspective to some degree if we have tasted richly of God's purposes of grace. And I will say, No, not all multiculturalism is Marxist. In fact, Marxism has tended to produce the exact opposite of multiculturalism. Some of the most nationalistically oriented statists have been Marxists who have been radically monocultural. China took the uh, monoculturalism to such an extreme under Mao Zedong that everybody was even forced to wear the same clothing. They just wanted all differences Uh, obliterated. What does God's grace do? It does something quite different. Grace makes us go beyond what we are used to. It makes us go beyond our comfort zones into expressing appreciation for the rich diversity that grace has produced within the kingdom. Every tribe, kindred, and tongue should come together to worship according to Revelation 5 verse 9. Now that passage cannot be explained away As some have tried to do, that that's the ideal in eternity, but that's not in history. That is specifically referring to prior to the second coming. How do I know that? It's because there won't be any tongues. We saw last week there will not be multiple languages in eternity. So this is calling for multiculturalism uh, within the church to some degree by His grace within a period of history when there are still multiple languages. And of course, it's going to last into eternity when all multiple languages will be abolished. So the eternal goal should be a magnetic pull upon us that makes us appreciate other nations and cultures. Now, verse 3 goes on to show that this is a curse-free city. There will be no accursed thing there. Now, again, this shows that John is indeed looking at this city from the perspective of eternity. He's in the first day of eternity. Yes, he's looking back at all that that thing, uh, that city impacted, but he's speaking from eternity. In eternity, all aspects of the curse will be banished from the universe as heaven is merged with earth. But here's the point. If the city shows a magnetic draw and pull upon the elect, if this is the final goal of the gospel, then we should be making progress toward that curse-free goal, even during history. Now, some people struggle with this. They think that we, you know, if you, if you go to the doctor for medicine, I, I've seen some people say, no, you just need to trust God. And if you go to the doctor for medicine, you're, you're fighting against God's will. But... Um, I think that's just a, a wrong way of looking at things. We can go to medicine to reverse, you know, infertility problems and things like that. Sickness is a part of the curse, and it's appropriate to prayerfully seek to reverse every aspect of the curse in history. Death is the only enemy that will be left unconquered, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Indeed, in past weeks, we have seen that the more pervasively the gospel spreads throughout the world, the more the curse will be removed in history. God wants it to happen that way. There is an inverse relationship between the holiness of the culture and the amount of curse that can be seen. Eventually, there will be no more war. That's a part of the curse. Isaiah guarantees no more war. Isaiah says, eventually, there will be no more disease. People will live longer. Eventually, animals will become so tame that even the most vicious and dangerous animals are going to be safe uh, to be around. Um, There's no reason to think that the curse cannot be pushed back as planet Earth is more and more saved and characterized by grace and holiness. So here's the thing. Every career that reverses some facet of the curse can be engaged in humanistically. And sometimes in violation of God's law, and you see the violations of God's law in genetic studies and uh, artificial fertilization and stuff. But the same things can be engaged in in a God-glorifying way as well. Even technology is a part of God's plan for reversing the curse. I'm thankful for air conditioning and computers, and um, you know modern medicine. Scientists are discovering ways to reverse some of the genetic mutations and deteriorations that have been happening. Uh, over history. But obviously in eternity, there will be a 100% curse-free city. But both verses 1 and 3 give hints that this is the capital city of the world and of the universe. Verse 1 speaks of the throne of God and of the Lamb being in the midst of the city. Verse 3 repeats that thought by saying, but the throne of God and of the Lamb are in her." So if this is the throne room of both Christ and God, it is the capital city which implies what? Well, it implies that this city is a model for other future cities and places of industry and exploration. Just as God's Garden of Eden was the model for Adam and Eve on how they were supposed to take dominion to the rest of the earth, this new Jerusalem is a model to mankind. It appears from chapter 21, verse 24, that the nations bring their glory, their honor, their dominion into the city Which implies what? That dominion's being taken outside of the city, right? So they're bringing their dominion into the city, I believe, probably through tithes, through reporting back to their king, telling their beloved king, you know, all of the exciting uh, discoveries and new exploits that they have taken. I just imagine Jesus saying, Well done. That is fantastic. Thank you for that report. And they celebrate together. The passages on the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, and Isaiah 66 confirm exactly what I've been saying because it talks about uh, uh, people working on planet earth with animals, building houses, planting vineyards, in other ways taking dominion. Now in cities themselves, I turn to Luke 19. In Luke 19, Jesus said that some of his servants will be rulers over ten cities, some will be rulers over five cities, some won't rule over any cities. But the very use of the word cities, plural, implies the new Jerusalem won't be the only city, okay? It is the capital over the universe. Now, it would not surprise me if people move out of the new Jerusalem, at least for periods of time, in order to take dominion over the earth um, with division of labor and specialization. And when they report back... They will have their own mansions to stay in, you know, during their week long or two week however long they stay there for a retreat and refreshment in the Lord, and then going out and taking some more dominion. It wouldn't surprise me if there are other worlds to explore and to take dominion over. After all, we're going to have an eternity, which in our case means never ending years, right? We're going to have an eternity in which to take dominion on behalf of our king, this new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven on the first day of eternity, and people will finally be able to explore beyond it. Right now, they cannot explore beyond the new Jerusalem. They're stuck there. Now, we saw it so huge. (laughs) There is plenty, plenty to be exploring within the new Jerusalem. But what's going to happen when the new Jerusalem comes to the earth It's going to be the capital. I believe there's going to be a lot of flow in and out of that city and a lot of worship and retreats and maybe things similar to the Old Testament festivals where people come together and celebrate uh, together. But there will be travel, eternal expansion, development, dominion, research, learning. There's going to be all kinds of things. So that's my theory. In any case, it's clear. This is a capital city, the place of God's throne room. Next, it is a city of fellowship and belonging. The fellowship is seen in the words, they will see his face, and the belonging can be seen in the words, and his name is on their foreheads. One of the longings of the human heart is to erase anything that alienates us from those that we love. I mean, it grieves you when you're alienated from somebody that you love. Well, in the Old Testament, one of the images for this erasing of the alienation between God and us is seeing God's face and His countenance shining upon us. Uh, when anybody's countenance shines, what's happening? They're smiling, right? So, God's countenance shining upon us is mentioned over and over in Scripture. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We're not going to run from God's presence as Adam and Eve did. Clothed in the righteous garments of Christ, we're going to long to come into His presence. We're going to have incredible joy in his presence well if that is one of the eternal goals of our lives that's what we're going to experience in eternity we should press into god's fellowship right now we should long for be motivated to have fullness of joy in his presence now think about it this way jesus has perfect fellowship with father son and holy spirit but 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9 says, we have been called into the fellowship of the Son. Now, it, this is actually mind-blowing for me because how could you have any better fellowship than Jesus had with the Father, and yet it says, we have been called into the same fellowship that the Son was called into. And so um, we're, we need to answer that call that he gives to us. Now, it's also a city of belonging. We all want to belong. Well, God, in effect, will brand his name on our foreheads so that we will joyfully never doubt the fact that we belong to him and he belongs to us. So it's a metaphor of belonging. It's a metaphor of ownership. It's a metaphor of likeness. His name on us, we're like him in a sense. So it's fully living out the image of God, our likeness and the way that we serve him. So here's my application question. Do you wish you had an Abba Father relationship with God? And I would say, just ask him for it. It is your heritage. Ask it by faith. Be filled with the Spirit. He is, after all, the Spirit of adoption. He is your heritage. Next, this reiterates what we saw last time, that this will be a city of light. Verse 5 says, Night will not exist there, and they will need neither lamp nor sunlight because the Lord God illuminates them. Now since this is 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, it's a cube, you're going to need to have some kind of a lighting system on the inside uh, because the sun and the moon would be on the outside of that. They're not going to light anything on the inside. But the presence of the light of God himself is an incredible blessing. There is nothing more frightening, at least to me, now that I've become claustrophobic, (laughs) there is nothing more frightening than the thought of being underground, way underground, spelunking, and your flashlight goes out. (laughs) Oh, that would be freaky. Um, Mining accidents, where all of a sudden there's no electricity, no sound, you're away from the, the presence and the fellowship of other people. And I think there is something very, very comforting about basking in the sun on the beach. It's very warming. God made us to need light and to value light, and it is a marvelous metaphor of God's favor shining upon us. The repeated prayer of the Old Testament is for God's countenance to shine upon us. This is at the heart of the Aaronic blessing that I pronounce upon you Uh, each and every Sunday. So for God's light to always shine is for God's blessing and favor to always be upon us. That's incredible when you meditate upon it. But if that's what we will experience in eternity, our hearts should be longing for more and more of the light of his countenance to shine upon us right now. By the way, somebody encouraged me a couple of weeks ago to, I think it was Mike or somebody that, you know, do we, why do we not raise our hands like we used to? Well, there's a lot of people that do. I would encourage you, when I pronounce the ironic benediction upon you, put out a symbol of your own faith. We're talking about all of these symbols here. God loves symbols. Hold your hands up like this with your palms upward. That's a symbol. Yes, Lord, I believe I will receive a blessing from you. I receive it by faith. Okay, so this, when you have your palms forward, you're blessing other people. When you have your palms upward, you're blessing God. When you have your palms like this, you're receiving something from God. I would encourage you to just put your body into the actions of faith that your spirit desires. Um, The Puritan writer Thomas Manton called the grace we daily experience young glory. I love that phrase, young glory. That implies glory can continue to grow. And of course, when you start studying about the glory of God, you realize it grows more and more in our lives as we go from faith to faith, from strength to strength. We're going to go, the scripture says, from glory to glory. The Puritans said that the grace, is like, the grace we experience right now is like a bud. It's tiny. But as it gradually opens up, we experience more of that grace until finally it's going to be in full bloom in eternity. Okay, finally, this is a city of dominion. Verse 5 says of the saints, and they will reign forever and ever. And people say, well, what is there to reign over in heaven and in eternity? Well, we've looked at verses that indicate that there are some people, at least on the new earth, that are going to be reigning over cities. And, um, it's going to take a long time, since there are others that are not reigning over cities, it's gonna take a long time to build those cities on planets. So it implies that there are some who are gonna take dominion in the area of building and supplying and administration, transportation, communication, economics, etc. Matthew 25 verse 23 says, some will simply rule over things. Okay, so that's an aspect of dominion responsibility. Beale points to Psalm 8 to show that we will reign over the entire creation. Creation and Psalm 8 not only talks about reigning over animals, I do think there is going to be animals in the new heavens. Maybe they're going to be different than our animals now, I don't know. But there will be living creatures. But he says we're going to be taking dominion over the planet itself. That's that's something we need to consider. Psalm 8 also speaks of the moon and the stars being under Christ's feet, and since we're united to Christ under our feet in some way, and so that gives some hint that there may be space exploration, tapping of energies, perhaps mining of other planets. There will be plenty to keep us busy throughout eternity. Psalm 8, verse 6 says that God, through Christ, gave man, redeemed mankind, dominion over all the work of God's hands. So that's pretty expensive. Beal points out that since angels are a part of the work of God's hands, they're a part of creation, Nehemiah 9, verse 6, Hebrews 2, 5 through 7 implies that even angels will be under man's rule and under man's authority. Now, certainly angels are going to be given to us to help us in our dominion work. They're servants. Hebrews 1, 14 says they're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So he's talking future there. Every believer will have angels to help him or her with their dominion tasks. Okay, so if angels were our servants, there's going to be some rule that believers will have over even angels. So there's going to be plenty for each and every believer to reign over, and I believe, based on a number of different scriptures, that each of us will be given an initial trust over which to rule and to take dominion, and it appears as we gain skill, we will be given increasing challenges so that we will always be fulfilled and satisfied in our work. As verse 3 says, his slaves will minister to him or will serve him. You may remember the the statement in the movie uh, Chariots of Fire where Eric Liddell says uh, that uh, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And every time I've seen that movie, it makes me cry. That phrase right there... I feel his pleasure. He felt God's pleasure in his ministry as a missionary, but he felt God's pleasure when he was running. Why? Because God made him to run. God had made him to do that. Now, I have the same experience in my ministry, and especially in research and writing. It's hard to carve out the time to do research and and writing, but when God enables me to do so, it gives me a heightened sense of God's pleasure and smile upon my work. It brings me great delight. I can hardly wait till Rodney retires from, uh, <laughs> from UP, probably another six years or at seven still, uh, so that I can go to doing more, uh, doing more writing. But here's the interesting thing that I find fascinating. The research that I do is so painstaking and tedious in some areas that you won't find one in a thousand people who enjoy it. In fact, they would find it burdensome and hateful. What scientists like to do, musicians probably don't and vice versa. Now that doesn't mean that they can't both enjoy the hard labors of the other people, they do. But why is it that we can't feel the same burden and you can't feel the same burden to do the things that I'm doing? It's because God made you for something different. That's okay. That's okay. Um, I spend hours teasing apart chronologies, historical details, exegetical clues, looking through hundreds of verses, engaging in hard work that others find boring and painful, but it brings me great delight and satisfaction. Why? Because God made me for it. And I'm always grateful that this church, right from the beginning, has given me at least a couple weeks off. I think this past year, year I took more, four. But I'm grateful that you guys are sending me out as a missionary, so to speak, in doing this. And yes, I'm shamelessly advertising myself that I hope that this continues indefinitely in the future. But you have your own areas of life that make you feel God's pleasure, well, Scripture says that in heaven, God will perfectly fit us with work that matches our calling, our gifts, and our capacities. And so think of the things that bring you the most satisfaction and fulfillment on earth, and you're going to have a, a multiplied increase of that fulfillment. Okay, we've spent three Sundays looking at this amazing city, Now I want to end by asking, how on earth do we get into this city? You can't enter it unless you have applied for citizenship in this life. If you do not put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation in this life, it will be too late. There is no getting into the city after you die. But this series will not be complete unless I conclude this section by showing the relationship of the heavenly Zion to absolutely everything in history. For example, we can only enter this city as the city itself gives birth to us. Galatians four twenty six says the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. In some way, the New Jerusalem gives birth to us while we are here in history. This is why Jesus told uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, who's uh, Nicodemus, told Nicodemus, you must be born from above, which is the literal rendering. Of uh, The Greek that the King James unfortunately translated, born again. But most versions nowadays say you must be born from above, from the New Jerusalem, from God's throne. Uh, the book of Galatians goes on to indicate you cannot contribute anything to the heavenly city apart from grace. Even your faith is a gift of God. Uh, James one twenty one starts earlier and says you were conceived by the implanted word. You couldn't so much as experience thirst for God, much less come to God, if God did not draw your heart. And so this is heaven invading earth every single time a person gets converted or regenerated. And Jesus said that the angels of heaven rejoice every time a sinner repents. Okay? Heaven is very much involved in evangelism. There's a mother-child relationship between heaven and new believers. Now, I've spoken in the past two sermons and in this sermon about the magnetic pull the New Jerusalem has upon our lives right now. What I want to point out is that that magnetic pull of the New Jerusalem came long before our new birth, long before our new birth. Let me outline how everything flows from the throne of God. The throne portion, even though the full city was constructed in the first century, there was still a heaven, there was still an abode, there was a throne section. Uh, going way back uh, before the world was even formed. God created the heavens first and the earth, and so the third heaven was created in that time. Psalm 93 verse 2 speaks of this throne as initiating our salvation. Salvation flows from the throne of God. It is sovereignly Uh, Chosen before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1 verse 4. Jesus died for all who were given to him by the Father. That's John chapter 17. And the Spirit sovereignly draws all those whom the Father has elected. Now he calls us initially. He calls us. It's his sovereign call in uh, Ephesians uh, 4 verse 4. Then he regenerates us. So this is an order of salvation. He regenerates us, what we call being born from above. Uh, or what um, um, uh, uh, Mark uh, 12 and John 5 and others speak of a spiritual resurrection, this new life automatically makes us conscious of our sins, of our need for God. It gives us new eyes, a new perspective, new longings of heart. So heaven is putting into our hearts longings we never had before. All of a sudden, It instantly produces repentance and faith and an immediate turnaround that makes a person want to come to God. All of those things flow from his throne. So Jesus repeatedly said in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him. So where is the drawing of people to Christ come from? It comes from the throne. It comes from the new Jerusalem. Which means there was a tug of Mother Jerusalem upon us at our conversion. So Acts eighteen twenty-seven speaks of those who had believed through grace. Ephesians one nineteen speaks of those who believed according to the working of His mighty power. Ephesians three twelve speaks of faith that comes through Him. Philippians one twenty-nine speaks of it being granted to us to believe. Second Peter one verse one says that the elect obtain faith. Where we obtain it? We obtain it from the throne of God. And he says, "We're in justification, we are declared righteous before that uh, same throne. This, in turn, begins God's work of making us long to be more and more like God. This is what Paul talks about as that upward call. You feel the tug within you. It grieves you when you sin. You want to be more and more like him. And then he enables us to answer this upward call by pursuing holiness. That's what we call sanctification. And God makes it clear in Galatians, that even sanctification is by His grace. It all has to flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Leviticus 20 verse eight says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And then finally, when we die, we're glorified, we're given brand new bodies, and they're called spiritual bodies. Now that does not mean they're bodiless bodies. Just like a steam engine is uh, an engine that is powered by steam. It's not made of steam, it's powered by steam. Our spiritual bodies are gonna be characterized by the Holy Spirit. Who flows from that throne, and from that moment on, Zion was having a magnetic pull, uh, working all things together. Let, let me just give you a, a, a couple more scriptures here, if, if I can. In eternity past, God said to Zion, You are my people. Now, Zion didn't even exist, but in God's decrees, His decree made it guaranteed. That Zion would exist. From that moment on, by the way, that's Isaiah 51, 15 through 16. From that moment on, Zion was having a magnetic pull, working all things together for the good of his people, even before those elect people were born. Jeremiah speaks of Zion, where God says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. So we were being drawn to salvation by the magnetic pull of God's love. Psalm 110, says Zion ruled in our lives while we were still enemies. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. But as God's kingdom comes into people's lives, they're turned from enemies into servants. And so Psalm 14:7 says, salvation comes out of Zion, redeems us out of captivity, and we're turned into servants of God. Romans 11:26 says, "And so all Israel will be saved. as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. It is heaven alone that can turn life into a death into life, rebellion to submission, an unregenerate state to new birth. And so, Galatians four twenty six says, "The Jerusalem above gives birth to us and is our mother." We couldn't even become Christians without it drawing us. So, Psalm eighty seven five through six says. And of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. So every one of the elect is born where? We're born in Zion. Zion is our mother. We need to get used to thinking in these categories. But not only are we born in heavenly Zion, the next verse says that everything good in our lives flows from Zion for the rest of our lives. It says, both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. See, this is why Colossians 3 says, we've got to quit seeking those things which are below and seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When we, by faith, receive from Christ, he gives us everything we need for this life on earth and for godliness, but it's heaven invading us and transforming us our prayer should constantly be your kingdom come lord your will be done i don't want my kingdom i don't want my will to be done i'm passionate about your will to be done in my life please have your way and as a result every blessing comes from above james 1 17 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights psalm 133 likens this to zion's dew descending from heaven Psalm 20 verse 2 says, May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. Psalm 134 3 says, The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you out of Zion. See, the point is, this is not pie in the sky, by and by theology. No, this is something, the new Jerusalem impacts every second of your life and all that you do if you will live by faith. If you're to have life, it must come from above. If you're to have blessing, it must come from above. If you're to have wisdom and victory, it must come from above. So don't look to the world's resources for anything. Look to Christ, his word, and his grace. The heavenly Jerusalem is not just a destiny we get to when we die. It is the place where everything good descends right now. And if that does not transform your prayer life, I don't know what would. Since it is the throne of the kingdom of heaven, it is the invading force for the transformation of everything below. So how do we get into the city and have constant access to its resources? It's by faith in Jesus. How do we drink of the living waters? By faith in Jesus. He told the Samaritan woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So it's my prayer that we all learn to live by heaven's power even now. And the more we do that, the more we're going to look forward to that eternal state. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made us citizens of the heavenly city. And we thank you, Father, that this heavenly city is more and more invading this earth and transforming this earth, and one day heaven and earth will be united. Father, we want to be a part of this process of the victory of Christ's kingdom. So bless us with wisdom, bless us with grace, bless us with the indwelling of your spirit. Uh, Fill us with everything that we need for this coming week. And we pray it in Jesus' name.